churches come in many shapes and sizes, and no matter what type of building it is, a church is a lot more than a place to sing songs and hear sermons. Church is a place where people can come together and judge those who don't show up. It's a place where gum is chewed, text messages are typed, and naps are taken. A church is a place for people to gather and stare at the back of the head of the person in front of them. It's a place for people to hum the words of the second verse of the song because it's kind of new to them, and the guy in the back that usually controls the PowerPoint is out sick, and the guy that's back there now hasn't changed slides yet. It's all this and a lot more. Church, there's a lot going on. These have been Deep Thoughts from a Shallow Christian. Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Special good morning to folks in Watertown who are celebrating the grand opening of their campus today. Celebrate that with them. Here in Lexington and Wilmington, we're really excited for all of you, and we hope you can feel the love uh, right through the screens here. I'm tempted to say that we've been looking forward to this day for a long time, but the truth is, it's happened pretty fast. This time a year ago, Watertown Community Church, they were not even on our radar screen. But a lot has happened in Watertown in the past year. And we believe that God is at work through all those things to do something good in that community and beyond. So we're really glad to be part of it and glad to be together with with you today. Well, we just heard some not-so-deep thoughts from a pretty shallow Christian about church. What about you? What do you think about when you think about church? church. Do you think happy thoughts, positive, hopeful, comforting, or dark ones, gloomy, depressing, uncomfortable? Does the word church stir up warm feelings and positive expectations, or does it bring to the surface feelings of disappointment, maybe even anger? I surfed the web a little bit and, uh, found out a lot of people have what they would call bad church experiences. And they range from uh, unfriendly people and boring services all the way to hypocrisy and legalism and judgmentalism and even abuse. And so I guess that explains why a lot of people are not in church today. The latest numbers tell us that about 18% of Americans go to church on any given Sunday which means eight out of ten people in your neighborhood are probably not in church this weekend. And as most of us know, here in Massachusetts, we come right down there near the bottom of the list when it comes to things like church attendance. They also tell us that anywhere from 3,500 to 4,000 churches are closing their doors every year, just shutting down for good. And we've seen it happen all over New England. Historic church buildings turned into condos or restaurants or ski shops or one thing or another. So one more shout out for Community Church of Watertown who was determined not to let that happen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, now, personally, I have been in the church for as long as I've been anywhere, honestly, since I was about two weeks old. And I've been in church most Sundays of my life. And I tried really hard to come up with a bad church experience. I mean, I really wanted a funny, dramatic story to tell, but, but I really could not come up with one. Now, I've been 
been to some quirky churches, I have heard and delivered some boring sermons, but, but for the most part, my experience in the church has been overwhelmingly positive. But I know that's not true for everyone. I know that for a lot of people, church stirs up feelings of frustration and disappointment and hurt. And that may be true for many people who are here today. And yet here we all are. Here we are opening a new church, in fact, or a renewed church, at least, in Watertown. And so it's a good time to ask, what kind of church is this going to be? What kind of church does Watertown need? What kind of church does Wilmington and Lexington and, and greater Boston need? What kind of church do you need? That's the question we're going to go after this morning. And I'm going to offer three responses. We'll spend most of our time on the first one and then hit the next two rather quickly. So if you're new to grace, if you're new to church, it will be a helpful introduction. For the rest of us, be a very timely reminder of who we are, why we're here, and what we are all about. So for those who are just catching up with us, we are about two-thirds of the way through a series that we're calling On Mission. We are learning what it means to join God in His work in this world, His work of healing and restoring people, society, the very earth itself. And so we are following the Apostle Paul on his missionary travels as he goes from city to city around the world, preaching the gospel and planting churches. This morning we're going to learn that you really can't be on mission without the church. You can't be on mission without the church, and we're going to find out why. So let's catch up with Paul as he begins his third missionary journey and visits the city of Ephesus. Now this story is told in the New Testament book of Acts chapter 19. And it turns out to be a pretty interesting chapter with some strange things going on. So hopefully it will not be one of those boring church sermons we talked about a little earlier, okay? Let's go to Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Now, let's get our bearings for a moment. Last week in chapter 18, Paul finished up his second missionary journey. We followed him to the city of Corinth, And then uh, across the sea to Ephesus for a quick stop. He left Priscilla and Aquila there and then returned home to Caesarea first uh, to rest and relax and bring some reports and then up to Antioch. But he pretty quickly hit the road again on his third journey, this time traveling overland from Antioch across to Ephesus through what we now call Asia Minor. And he stopped in Ephesus. Now, once again, Paul has targeted a strategic city. If Athens was the city of big ideas and Corinth was the city of big business, then Ephesus was a city of big religion. It was home to the temple of Artemis, also called Diana. Now, this is all that's left of that magnificent temple today, a pile of ruins, but but this is what it would have looked like back in the day. It had a hundred massive marble pillars soaring 60 feet in the air. 
It was adorned throughout with statues and idols and works of art. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, last week we talked about the fact that the city of Corinth was dominated by a highly sexualized atmosphere. The city of Ephesus was characterized by a spiritualized atmosphere. It wasn't just this great temple of Artemis. There were all kinds of sects and cults and even the occult operating all throughout Ephesus. Rituals, beliefs, customs, superstitions, deeply embedded in Ephesian culture. In fact, walking around some sections of the ancient city of Ephesus, what might have felt like walking around the city of Salem, Mass., on this holiday weekend. Everywhere you looked, you would see shops and objects and people pointing to some dark and frightening and unseen world. So we can imagine that when, uh, how excited Paul would have been to have found a group of believers in this city. At least they they said they were believers. They, They called themselves disciples. But the more time Paul spent with them, the less they looked like real Christians. They talked like Christians, they acted like Christians, but something was missing. There was no, there was no vitality, there was no power, there was no evidence of the life of God at work within them. And so finally he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. It's the the Spirit of Christ that he gave to his followers when he returned to earth after the resurrection. They said, no, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, we should clarify a little bit. If, If they've heard the teaching of John the Baptist, they had certainly heard about the Holy Spirit because John talked about the Holy Spirit. What they hadn't heard was that the Holy Spirit had come. They hadn't heard that the power and presence of God was now available to them, that they could experience the life of God personally. What baptism did you receive, he asked. And they said, John's baptism. Well, that was the problem. You see, John's baptism was preparatory. It was a sign of of, of repentance, of, of turning towards God. But all along, it was meant to point people towards Jesus, the the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. So these so-called disciples had never heard the rest of the story. They they hadn't heard that Jesus had actually come, that that he had lived a good and beautiful life, that he died on the cross for the sins of the world, that he rose again on the third day, that he returned to heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to be with and in his people in the world. They hadn't heard that. And so their hearts were ready for Christ, but they hadn't yet received Christ. And so we might say that these believers in Ephesus had religion, but they didn't have God. They had religion, but they didn't have God. They had beliefs, they had rituals, they had a spiritual community they belonged to, they even had a name for themselves, disciples. But something was missing, someone was missing. And I'm afraid that's true for many people today. So many people today have a religion, but they don't have an actual relationship with God. Last week, Karen and I and some friends finally made it to the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit at the Museum of of Science just before it left town. 
It's a great exhibit, and maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But while we were there, we saw the IMAX film Jerusalem. And that, too, was a great experience. The film basically takes you on a tour of the holy city as seen and felt through the eyes and faith of three young women, a Jew, a Christian, and a Muslim. And what struck me about the whole experience was the religiosity of human beings. And we had an opportunity through the IMAX to see and hear and even feel the pageantry, the intensity, the diversity of religious expression in that city among those three religions. Thousands of Muslims bowing in prayer five times a day. Throngs of Jews gathering at the Western Wall for prayer and study and services. It happens all day long. Crowds of Christians pressing their way down the Via Dolorosa. Now, if you've ever been to the IMAX, you know how, how virtual the experience it is. It, it feels like you're there. We could practically smell the incense in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, where scenes like this unfold all the time. This kind of thing goes on every day, all day, not just in Jerusalem, but in cities and towns and villages all over our world. And these are just three of the many religious movements in the world today. The religiosity of human beings is a remarkable thing. From the very dawn of human history right now to our modern enlightened world, we, we hunger for transcendence. We yearn for the supernatural. We strive for peace with God. And these rituals and beliefs and customs and communities, these are all expressions of those yearnings, of that hunger, of those strivings. But here's the problem. Religion is not the end game. Rituals and beliefs and ceremonies and, and even communities cannot satisfy the deep longing of our souls for transcendence, for beauty, for wonder, for joy, for power. We were made for relationship, not just with each other, but with God, who is himself a person and who revealed himself to us in a person, Jesus of Nazareth. By his life, he showed us the kind of lives that we were meant to live, lives of beauty and joy and love and goodness. By his death, he paid the price of all our sins and failures so we could be forgiven once and for all. By his resurrection, he conquered our two greatest enemies, sin and death. He set us free to become the people and live the lives we were meant to from the beginning. And by his Holy Spirit, he is present with us and in us as his people in this world. Forgiveness, freedom, fullness of life. Religion points us towards those things, but only God himself can deliver them. And he does through his son, Jesus Christ. And when the, when the Ephesians finally understood that, then they began to experience the fullness of life and relationship with God. Let's go to verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, baptism was one of the signs of, was the sign of belief in the early church, 
and is still generally accepted as the sign of belief in Christ today. Speaking in tongues was one of the signs of new life in the early church. And sometimes that's true today, but it's not always true today. There are many believers in Christ who speak in tongues and many who do not. Speaking in tongues is is not a part of the life, our life together as a church. The signs of life that we look for today, the signs of new life are things like like joy and, and, and love and kindness and goodness and purpose and meaning and hope. When those things are evident in a person's life, it's a sign that the life of Christ has come to them. Now, just a little side note for some who might be interested in some of the intricacies of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and things like that. Some folks will turn to this passage and suggest that that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, is a second work of grace. In other words, that first the person comes to faith in Christ, and then at some later point they receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But that's really not what's happening here. We've already seen these these believers had really not received the whole message of Jesus. They really weren't Christians yet. And so they received the Holy Spirit at the same time as they received Christ and turned to Him in faith. And so we believe the Bible teaches when you come to faith in Christ, you receive His Holy Spirit as well. In some people's lives, it's accompanied by supernatural signs like this. In many others, it is not. Well, having said all that, let's come back to our opening question. What kind of church is this anyway? What kind of church does the world need? The first thing we'd like to say is that this is going to be a Christ-centered church. A Christ-centered church. Our life and work as a church revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the world doesn't really need more religion. What the world needs is a relationship with a God who loves us, who made us for himself, and who wants us to live the lives he meant us to live in Christ. And so we call ourselves a non-denominational church. We, We stand in the historic, biblical Christian faith, but we welcome people from all Christian backgrounds, from any religious background, or from no religious background because it's a Christ-centered church. And so before we go on any further, I need to pause and ask a question. Do you have religion or do you have a relationship with God? You see that there is a difference. It's the difference between knowing about something or someone and really experiencing something or someone. These Ephesians thought they were Christians but they discovered they hadn't even heard or received the best part yet. Becoming a Christian is about turning to Christ and receiving His forgiveness and the freedom to live a new life with Him. And that's what our church is about. So that's the first characteristic, and the second two will go a little more quickly. The second is that this is a life-giving church. A life-giving church. Let's look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Now here's where some strange things begin happening, so let's try to talk about this for a moment. Remember a couple of things. First of all, remember that that these were the very early days of Christianity and the church. 
The world had never heard this message before. And so these dramatic kinds of signs and miracles often happened in the early days of the church to authenticate the ministry, the message of Paul, the life of the church. It was, it was to show that, that this was the real thing, that this was God's power at work. Remember, too, that Ephesus was a very superstitious culture. Magic spells, sacred objects, talismans, all these things were a part of the fabric of their life. And so they needed to see that God's power was greater than these magic spells and these sacred objects and these superstitions. They needed to see that Christ could bring real healing and wholeness and wellness to people. And so the church and the Lord worked through these kinds of signs that were relevant to that particular culture and that particular time. Just, just this past week, uh, someone shared a mailing with me from a, from a, a television ministry in which the, the, the preacher was offering to send the person a, a specially anointed prayer cloth with healing power in return for a $75 donation. Now, those kinds of things make me and maybe us a little bit uncomfortable. Uncomfortable, first of all, because we know that God's grace is not for sale. That you can't purchase God's goodness with, with, with any kind of financial gift or any kind of good work at all. The second reason it makes me uncomfortable is that it takes, it takes something that was unique to a particular time and place and tries to make it normative for all people and all times and all places. Now, I'm not suggesting that God can't and doesn't work through things like this. We know there are parts of the world today where God works in these ways dramatically to turn people towards Him. But often that happens in cultures in which that sort of thing is very much a part of their language. It's very relevant to them. We see a little bit less of those kinds of things in our culture today. And on our setting, we most often are the authenticating signs. Our changed lives, our grace towards others, our sense of purpose in life. We, by our very lives, become the testimony to God's power at work. That's why it's so important to be on mission, to be out there, get out of our holy huddles and out there into the world to show the world. So all this to say, that this church became a life-giving church. People found healing, they found wholeness, they found wellness through the ministry of the church. Now, someone slipped me an article recently on the health benefits of church attendance, and maybe you've heard this kind of thing. It turns out that people who attend church regularly tend to have stronger immune systems, lower blood pressure, and in general live two to three years longer than people who don't. Now, we should work that into our advertising, right? <laughs> Live longer, come to church. Teenagers who go to church are less likely to use drugs. Married couples are less likely to divorce. And elderly people have fewer health crises. They even tell us that uh, the most sexually satisfied people in America are regular church attenders. I threw that in there so it wouldn't be a boring sermon, you know. Right? <laughs> but they tell me it is true. It is true. Now, all this is very, very interesting. But the life-giving power that we're talking about goes far beyond a few health benefits. We're talking about real wellness, real wholeness, real freedom. 
The church is a place where people find healing physically, emotionally, spiritually. The church is a place where people find freedom from the hurts and the habits and the hang-ups that can ruin our lives. The church is a place where broken relationships are restored. The church is a place where floundering people find a sense of purpose. The church is a place where discouraged people find a sense of hope and joy in all the circumstances of life. Not because of church, but because of Christ, who is at the center of our life together. So those kinds of things don't usually involve prayer cloths and anointed handkerchiefs. God can certainly work any way God chooses. But generally how it works in a church like this is that we gather weekly for worship and we once again put Christ back at the center of our lives, our careers, our families, our friendships, our our lives. We find a smaller group of people with whom we can share the journey of life and faith. We study the Bible together, we pray for each other, we care for each other, we serve the world together. We call them life communities here at Grace. We have them not just for adults, but for teenagers and children as well. This sort of thing happens when we learn how to to walk day by day in a relationship with God. Reading His Word, talking to Him in prayer, following the prompting of His Holy Spirit. And here at Grace, we're blessed to be able to offer a variety of special kinds of ministries that help us meet the challenges of life. The marriage course, mom to mom, celebrate recovery, grief share, divorce recovery, things like that. With God's help, we would like to be a life-giving church. A church that is used by God to help you become the person you are meant to be and live the life you were meant to live in relationship with Christ. Thirdly, the world needs a difference-making church, a difference-making church, a church that has a positive impact on the community and the world around. Let's jump down to verses 17 through 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, we have skipped over a rather bizarre episode in Acts chapter 19, in which a group of posers tried to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, even though they themselves were not believers. Let's just say it ended badly with the scripture telling us that the men who tried that were chased out of the house by the demon-possessed man and left the house naked and bleeding. Now, last night, I was trying to describe this scene, this chapter to Karen in the car, and the more I described it, the stranger it sounded. It sounded like a scene from a a bad exorcism movie, But, but that's really what happened. The end result of the whole thing was that it soon became clear to the people at Ephesus that something powerful was at work here. And they wanted to be on the right side of it. And so they began turning away from their superstitions, from their dark beliefs and practices, and turning towards God in faith. And the result was that life in the city began to change dramatically. People brought their their, their cultic scrolls and scriptures and objects and made a big bonfire. 
And Luke tells us the value of them, which ran into the billions of dollars in our context, to help us understand that the the very economy of the city was turned upside down. People were delivered from fear. Dark streets were filled with light. The city of Ephesus became a more happy, healthy, and hopeful kind of place. And that's the kind of church Watertown needs. And Lexington, and Wilmington, and greater Boston, and the whole world. It's the kind of church we all need. A church that will make a positive impact in the world. A church that will make life better for people. That will advance God's kingdom. A church that will promote justice, and health, and education, and opportunity, and beauty, and goodness, and, and equality for all people everywhere. That kind of church. And that's what this On Mission series is all about. Helping us individually and collectively learn what it means to be about these things in the world. Uh, Last weekend, 40 or so folks from Grace Chapel and an equal number of folks from the local community in Dorchester spent the day together helping to spruce up the Trotter School there in Dorchester, a school that we have adopted. On that Saturday, we're told that they scrubbed 600 desks, they raked 40 bags of leaves, cleaned 33 classrooms, shampooed 13 carpets, and painted six doors. Now listen to what one of the staff members writes in an email the next day. The building looks amazing. Even some of the kids, who I know are from some really challenging situations at home, came to the event. And I can only imagine how this can help create opportunities to change a life. Thank you for joining us on an important journey to create better lives for the people we serve. That's what it means to be on mission. Some of the other ways that GC folk are are living on mission are on display in our hallways and all of our campuses with pictures and stories. You can go online and see them as well at My Life, God's Heart. And in a couple of weeks, on Saturday, November 9th, we'll have an opportunity to join many of our regional partners in a day of service, a half day, Saturday morning, November 9th. Maybe you, your family, your life community would like to spend some time serving with one of our partners. Well, all this to say that with God's help, we want to become a Christ-centered, life-giving, and difference-making kind of church. I said at the outset that uh, I have been in the church for from the very earliest days of my life. And I can tell you that even after all those 50-some years, even after all that I've seen and experienced, I love the church. I believe in the local church. Along with many today, I believe the local church is the hope of the world. That when the local church is functioning the way God designed it to, it is one of the most beautiful and powerful forces on this earth. I believe that with all my heart. And I've basically devoted my life to helping to build the kinds of churches that I grew up in, the churches that shaped my life so powerfully. And I can tell you that in my 14th year here at Grace, I am having the time of my life serving, leading, growing with all of you as we seek to become this kind of church by God's grace. I'm just thrilled about it. But I know two things to be true. First, we're still on the way. And we are not a perfect church. This is who we want to be and who we're striving to be with God's help, but we won't always get it right. Yes, there will be some boring sermons. And chances are we will disappoint you from time to time. But know that this is our heart. 
This is who we want to be with God's help. The second thing I know is that we are not the only show in town. There are good, growing churches all over this great city and New England, and we're excited about that. And many more are being started. In fact, remember that statistic I cited earlier? 3,000 to 4,000 churches closing their doors every year? The good news is that more than that are being opened every year, including here in Boston. And most of those new churches are Christ-centered, life-giving, difference-making churches because those are the only kinds of churches that are going to survive in the world today. So if you already belong to a church like that, if you have a church like that right next door, then by all means, be part of it. But if you don't, we'd love to have you join us. So all this sounds wonderful in theory, but how does it look? How does it work in the lives of some regular people? We'd like to finish up this morning by giving you a chance to hear from some real folks who have had a good church experience. But we'd like you to hear that story from folks on your own campus. So at this point, we're going to release our campuses to their, to their own service, and you'll get a chance to hear someone from your own congregation tell their story, and then your host pastor will wrap things up where you are. So I'm going to invite David and Christy Brochu of our congregation to come and join me here. David and Christy have been around Grace for a handful of years, and uh, they've spent most of the morning down in Kidstown, so we dragged them up here for our service here this morning. Can you welcome them with me? So, David and Christy, I know you've been around here for seven or so years. Um, tell us a little bit about your background, maybe what your spiritual background was like and, and how you found your way to grace. Um, I grew up in a religious household. We went to church pretty much every week. Uh, as, a, as a young adult, I ended up with a religious framework, which was, which was valuable. But I wasn't excited about it, and I wasn't too passionate about it. So, so as a result, I basically didn't go to church for 25 years. Um, then when we started to get married and, have, and starting, started to have children, I started to feel that tug. Come on, David, get it together. Kids are going to start watching you, you know, figure out what you're going to do. So, but I dreaded just going through the motions and, and just going to church and not feeling it. Uh, so a friend had brought me here in the 90s, we, and I found it pretty interesting. And so I started coming and pretty much just loved it immediately, the music and and the excitement and the energy in the room. And the first week I had come alone, I was texting Christy, and they have free childcare. Um, and, and, and that's how we start. That's how I started coming. Oh, yeah. Well, I, um, I also had a, grew up in a religious household and, and went to church every week and went to parochial schools. And I was pretty on board with the whole thing until college. And then uh, one of the classes that I took really brought up some serious questions about the nature of God and his goodness and his expectations. It was enough so that I had to stop coming to church and I, I needed to either figure something out or just, well, I started seeking elsewhere. And when um, I got stuck, yeah. I mean, I was, I was just stuck and I drifted. And, and so when we finally came here... Um, I wasn't sure if, if it could answer all my questions, and I wasn't sure if any of these issues could be resolved, but I was just really hopeful that it, that it would. Okay. It could. One of the things we were talking about this morning is that the church as a community can help people along that journey to find their way to a relationship with God. So how did the church help you guys to do that? 
Well, like, like you said, um, honestly, when I first came here, it was because um, someone was going to be able to hold my infant for an hour while I could have some time to myself. And, and that's really how I started coming and, and why I started coming. And as I sat here through the sermons, um, it only took maybe two or three for me to realize um, that God was touching my heart and that I could feel him touching my heart. And I, I could feel that there would be answers coming if I could just stay here long enough to hear them. And, and so I... Well, what did I do? <laughs> it, it, this came out better the first time. <laughs> well, yeah, we started we started serving serving in Kidstown, and um, yeah. Why well, let David pick it up? Yeah, let's let David pick it up. For me, the church helped us. It was just it was a rich and fertile environment to come, and you know, nobody in your face. Uh, the sermons. And the teachings met me where I was at intellectually and personally, and it was just a great environment that culminated this past summer, both of us getting baptized at Camp of the Woods, and that was a great time. <laughs> also, the, ex- the, the experience, uh, one of the experiences of going to Camp of the Woods uh, with 375 of our closest Grace Chapel friends and you're eating, and you're playing, and you're flipping other people's kayaks several times. Um, and, and it was just a, a really, really rich environment for us. I got it now. Because, you know, and well, it's an important point for me to make because it really is the crux of the whole thing. I, through the sermons and the courses and the life community where we did Bible studies and, and the volunteering, all these experiences, all these things that we did here brought me to the place where I could now see that Jesus was important and that he died for me. It was personal. I needed him to rise from the dead for me. I needed this, and it was so personal. And I, throughout all my early religion, I just, I never made that point. I just never understand and made that connection. So that was really the key for me. All right, well, good. Thank you. Uh, One more thought. Uh, We've talked about how the church can help us get on mission, and I'm remembering, David, uh, I think you and I got, you, uh, we, we met pretty early on in your time here in the shuttle bus once, back and forth to the high school, and from the get-go, from pretty early on, you jumped into serving. Tell us how the church has helped you find a sense of mission. The church taught us how, this church taught us how to live on mission by giving us examples all around us, and the enthusiasm and the energy of all the volunteers, and we, I mean... It's, it's changed our family's life. There's no question about that. And, and that's because of the community and the church. Well, what, what I had seen it was uh, if you're going to be on, I mean, if you're going to be on mission, you need to, if you don't know what it looks like, you've got to be somewhere where you can see what it looks like. You've got to put yourself in that environment. I didn't know what it meant for me to be on mission, and, and I didn't know that it was a natural progression of your spiritual journey. I found for myself that... We often, we receive blessings. We, it's not until we receive blessings from somewhere or someone that we might then think to want to bless others in the same way. I mean, perfect example is I have been given more baby clothes and more children's clothing and toys than I could ever need. And I would never think of going out and trying to consign those clothes or sell those clothes. I want to give them. It was a blessing to me. I now want to give it. Same thing happened here in the church I wouldn't be here if there wasn't somebody downstairs holding my baby and watching my toddler. You know, and that was powerful for me. So I, I feel that I owe it to somebody to, 
do the same thing for them because it was such a blessing to me and and it was so um, so crucial to me so I our experience here um, what we experience here gives us some material to move forward we have intellectual learning we have spiritual breakthroughs, we have interpersonal relationships that are all Christ-centered, and by being here and doing this, we now have the material to move forward, be on mission, both here in the church and now as our kids are starting to get older, we look forward to also bringing that mission outwards into the communities. Well, thank you guys for sharing Lou's story. Can we say thank you to the groceries? Well, we've talked a lot about church this morning, but I hope you understand in the end, it's really about you. It's about you discovering a relationship with God and the life He meant you to live in community with His people in this world. And if you have never experienced that, you can experience that by simply turning in faith to Jesus Christ, receiving His forgiveness and the freedom to live a new life. If you have done that and you don't have a church, we would love to have you join us as we make this journey towards becoming a Christ-centered, life-giving, and difference-making church. Let's bow and pray. You know, with our our heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I wouldn't want to rush ahead without giving you an opportunity, perhaps today, to move from religion to relationship. If you have never turned to Christ personally, and ask his forgiveness and receive new life, you can do that today. And I'll invite you quietly in your heart, if you're ready to do that, to pray these simple words, this simple prayer after me. Dear Lord, thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you for loving me and for sending your son Jesus to earth to live and die and rise again for me. I ask you now to forgive my sins and failures and to help me become the person you made me to be. In Jesus' name. And with our heads still bowed and eyes closed, just want to give you an opportunity to let me know you prayed that prayer this morning just so I could be praying for you. So if you did, would you just slip up a hand and look towards me for a moment? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Just slip a hand up. Thanks. Look towards me. Thanks, thanks. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us today. Through this, your word, and by your spirit, in the company of your people. Thank you for these who've said yes to new life today to receive forgiveness and freedom. May they leave here with a sense that they are on a new path, that that you live within them by the power of your Holy Spirit. And remind the rest of us of that day we began our journey with you as well. And pray that we might answer your call as individuals and a church to be your people in this world, now and until Jesus comes again. Amen.